23. Chapter 23. If you're using a pew Bible, it'll be on page 21. Start at verse 1 of chapter 23. Let's stand. Oh, yes. As you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Thank you for this. Yeah. <laughs> Starting at verse 1, it says, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you're willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat me. For me, Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of the city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. He said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field, accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, oh, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver? What is that between me and you? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went into the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for burying place by the Hittites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we're thankful to be here this morning, Lord. I uh, pray that you bless us with your word in this presence, Father. I pray that we may understand the text by the help of your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would be with Parker as he prepares to preach. And Lord, we pray that Christ may be exalted. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Thanks, Brian. You're good, bro. You know, every culture 
no matter how different it is from our own uh, or different from the views of Scripture, every culture has some sort of burial process. Have you ever thought about that? Uh, certainly, there are practical reasons uh, for, the, uh, for a body to be disposed of in some manner, but, but respect and care and intentionality uh, is common, is universal throughout all cultures. You know, no matter how different the rites and rituals are, people are intentional about what happens when a loved one dies. Now, as Christians, we know why that is. Because we have been made by someone and in His image. We are made in the image of God, which doesn't mean that we look like God, but rather the fact that we have souls that we're morally responsible for our actions, and we were built for relationship with each other and with God. And just like uh, when you design something, even when it's flawed, it still has that design still within it. So mankind, no matter if someone's a terrorist or the greatest philanthropist, philanthropist of all time, everybody has value, worth, and dignity because... He or she was made in the image of God. And we bear within us that innate knowledge that death was not the part of the original design, it was part of God's plan and His plan of redemption, but, but Adam and Eve were made for life. And death is an enemy. And when we say goodbye to someone we love, then we're intentional. There's value and worth and dignity about what we do with their bodies. And so when we come to Scripture and we find the first burial recorded in all of Scripture, something that happened 4,000 years ago, what we find is that while some things have changed, a great many things have stayed the same. And so in our time together this morning, as we who live on this side of the empty tomb of Christ, we want to look at this text and see what we can learn about the Christian life, death, and burials that we will experience in our own lives and the lives of those around us. How are we called to do these things, living in a land that is not our own and looking to the land that is to come, the true promised land of heaven? Sarah lived to the ripe old age of 127. Can you imagine? When she was 65 and her husband was 75, they set out from the Ur of Chaldees to a land that God would show them we call this the promised land. You know why it's called the promised land? It was a land that was promised. It took me a while to figure that one out. Uh, <laughs> now, God had promised to give to Abraham and to Sarah great offspring, a great many offspring, more than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashores. And we've seen along the way that there were a few problems, most notably the fact that Sarah was barren. They had not produced a child. And wouldn't produce a child until Sarah was 90. All because God opened up her womb. During this time of ups and downs, our lives are like that too, right? Of ups and downs, living in a promised land. The thing about the promised land, it was promised to them, but they didn't have ownership of it. They lived as sojourners in the land that was promised, but in the land that did not belong to them. Abraham at this point was perhaps, probably, most definitely, the richest single person on earth. And by the end of his life, the only land that he will own 
is the place where he buried his wife. Isn't that amazing? He didn't own any land in the promised land except for the field and the cave at Machpelah. And today he has to buy it. Up until this point, he has only been a sojourner with not even a place to lay his head as we think about pointing to Jesus. And so he begins the negotiation process with the Hittites. This is how he describes himself. He says in verse 4, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. You know, when you don't own land or you don't even have a place to rent, you don't have a place to call your own, but are only tolerated to some degree or another by the possessors of the land, it'll certainly change your outlook on life. Think about that. He lived in a land that was promised him but did not belong to him. It was under the control mostly of these pagan kings who would have to be driven out one day. 400 some odd years later. And so he viewed the promised land in such a way that he saw life as belonging to God and he had to depend on God because he didn't belong anywhere. Well, kind of, right? There's that kind of, there's that tension of his life and perhaps our own as well. In fact, the promised land was meant to be the inheritance of his descendants. Now, this is interesting because in order to pass something along to your descendants, what do you have to do first? You have to own it. And he didn't own it. And he was trusting in the promises of God that he would fulfill his promises that he would give it to his descendants. Sarah was a woman of great faith. You know, perhaps I haven't said that enough in our study. Sarah has kind of come in and out of the life of Abraham as it's accounted in Scripture But Sarah was a great woman of faith. She's spoken very highly of in Hebrews chapter 11, the the great hall of faith there. And and she and Abraham were included, being referred to in Hebrews 11, 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. As they looked in faith to the time to come that they would never see when God would fulfill His promises and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. You know, with Abraham and Sarah, we see them quite literally strangers and foreigners and exiles living in a land that is not their own. But this also is one of the metaphors that is used to describe the Christian life in the New Testament. You know, the reality is that while we live in this world, we really belong to the next. This world matters. This world certainly matters. Our lives matters, our families matter, our work matters, our communities matter, our labors for the Lord matter. But we have all, and we've been called to work and to tend and to keep and to cultivate and have dominion over and be stewards over. Yet, we belong more fully to the new heavens and the new earth. You know, really, um, we have more in common with heaven than we do with Bruton. Let me read that again. Let me say that again. We have more in common with heaven than we do with Bruton. Philippians puts it this way. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. So where's our citizenship? 
I have a passport. It says America on it. My true citizenship, my deeper citizenship is that in heaven. 1 Peter 2.11 says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Okay, it's really interesting that Peter picks up these two words, sojourners and exiles, because Hebrews 11 is going to say the exact same thing about Abraham and Sarah. Sojourners and exiles, same words. Beloved, as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. You know, when you don't belong to a place, it changes how you view how you live there. I spent two summers in England uh, working with a ministry in college, and I was very aware that I was not at home. I thought the first summer I went that, that England's just like America. They speak our language. It's just like it. That's not true. They do speak our language, but in a weird, funky kind of way. But, but, but they, they do everything else wrong. They, they drive on the wrong side of the road. Riding your bike on the wrong side of a road in a roundabout is a good way to die. It felt like home, but it wasn't. And the longer I spent there, I realized this is not home. And that's what our experience in this life is meant to be like. We live here, but this isn't truly home. Now, Bruton may be our home on the far side of when Christ comes back and he makes it new. I don't know if we'll keep the same city names. I don't know what any of that's going to look like, but it won't look like this. There won't be any, any sickness, sorrow, pain, or death. There'll be no injustice or poverty, no, no orphans, those who can't take care of themselves. All that will be gone. That's the land that we live in, or that we belong to. We've been given eternal life. We've been made fit for heaven by the blood of Christ. And just like Abraham and Sarah lived in this land that was not their own, but it kind of was their own, and they viewed it as belonging to their God who was going to give it to them in the future. It changed how they lived. I wonder, do we think that way? See, we're reminded from Heidelberg Catechism number one that we belong body and soul, both in life and death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Do we approach life like that? When we see this world is fleeting and it pales in comparison to the glory to come, when we see that and we have that perspective, that, that allows us to leave it all on the field, that we belong somewhere else, we won't be here forever. It allows us to be bold in service for the Lord and generous with our resources because guess what? Our resources will burn up. And it allows us to invest in the world to come, to invest in the kingdom, to sow into other people's lives that they might know Jesus. When we identify more with the kingdom to come than our physical homesteads, we're able to leave behind our homes like Abraham and Sarah did, the early Chaldees. They left their homeland to live in a land that was not their own. And we too are empowered to leave our homelands and go overseas for foreign missions. Have you ever considered foreign missions? Do you know who goes to be a foreign missionary? Normal people. They're not superstars. They're normal people who are called by God to, to up and move and to leave their families. And this means that grandchildren don't see their grandparents. That's crazy, right? But when we see that the world to come is more important than the world we have here, we're reminded of Jesus' words to the disciples in Matthew 19. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake 
will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. When our citizenship is in heaven, we belong there more than we belong here. It allows us, it causes us to be more open to God moving us around. Perhaps God's not going to move you to Africa. Maybe He will. But perhaps instead of a, a physical location, relocation, it's a schedule um, uh, reorganization where you have to find time to include loving on others, investing in others, opening your homes to children who may need somewhere to stay. Things that are very inconvenient. But when viewed through the eyes of glory, when viewed through the eyes of the kingdom to come, is the only thing we can do. We understand that there are gracious rewards in, in, in our inheritance in heaven. And the scorn of friends, the loss of income, the loneliness that comes with faithful service to the Lord, these things become more bearable. What do you mean, Abraham? You, you worship a God you can't see? You need one of these. I bought it for $2.50 down at the corner market, and I bow down to it every morning, and, and it gives me what I need. Really? Sarah, you, you believe that God's going to give you a child? Don't you remember how old you are? What do you mean your family's not going to be involved with sports on a Sunday afternoon? Don't you know that that's the only way that they'll get a scholarship? There are things, y'all, that when the Lord works in our hearts, He reorients it. And as we invest in the world to come, instead of the world that is here, it's going to look more and more radical. Sarah and Abraham's life, they lived in a land that was not their own, and yet they kept telling people, yeah, we actually own this land. <laughs> no, you don't. No, 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 really, really. Our descendants are going to get it. <laughs> no, you don't. No, no. They looked to the world to come. And so 62 years after entering the promised land with Abraham, Sarah died. Abraham was 137 years at this point. Isaac was 37. She went to be with the Lord in heaven. You know, saints who died before Christ's coming, you know where they went? Heaven, just like we do. Some teach that they went to a holding tank, uh, and that's not true. Uh, that, that really is what it's, it feels like, though. Uh, that, that they wouldn't have the, the full promises that we have. Christ hadn't died yet, but His sacrifice was retroactive. Or pro, pre-active. Whatever comes before, right? <laughs> it counted. They went, she went to heaven. She was a great woman of faith. But why did she die? We thought about, why did Sarah die? She died because she lived in a world that was marred by sin and causes us to look for the world to come. See, until Christ comes again, everyone will die. You know, everybody that Jesus raised in the Gospels, you know what happened to them? They died. Can you imagine dying twice? I'm not looking forward to once. Romans 5.12 says that death entered into the world because of the sin of one man, Adam. Even Adam and Eve were created for life, not death. And when they fell, so did all of creation. 
1 Corinthians 15, 26 says, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Aren't you looking forward to that day? When there are no more death certificates. Because the death certificate of our Savior had to be revoked. It had to be shredded. Because he didn't stay dead. Death has been transformed by Christ. This is because Christ died in our place. And he didn't stay dead. If our, if our Savior had stayed dead and you could go see his body in the museum, then we would all go to hell when we died. But the good news is when those ladies, those godly ladies, went to dress his body, they had more faith than those men did. What did they find? They found two angels, a rolled away stone, and empty grave clothes. Christ died on the cross paying for the penalty of our sin. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification which means that upon our death we are ushered immediately into the presence of God because He lives, we sang earlier, that even if we have a tomorrow, we know that we will be with Jesus if He calls us before them. And Sarah, Abraham's wife, might just be part of the welcome party. Well, just because Christians are ushered immediately into glory when they die does not mean we shouldn't mourn their loss. There are many well-meaning believers who say that when a Christian dies, you should just be happy. And there is joy, and I'll get to that in a second. But that's not the witness of Scripture. What does Abraham do? This very godly man, this, this, um, this example of great faith. Verse 2, And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. This idea of weeping, back in uh, Abraham's day and Jesus' day, and still in the Middle East, uh, mourning is a very public thing. This is, these are ugly tears. This is mascara running down your face kind of tears. This is the, I can't believe she's doing that kind of tears. He was really upset. Because his best friend had died, they'd probably been married over a hundred years. Of course he's sad. When something bad happens, we're supposed to be sad. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. What did Jesus do in John 11? Do you remember? As he's standing there at the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus, whom he's about to raise from the dead, what does he do? He weeps. And the Greek there of weep is not the, the kind of southern, evangelical, you know, kind weeping where we go in the other rooms no one can hear us, but rather wailing and crying out. Here's the Son of God weeping over the death of his friend. So it's good to weep. It's good to weep. But, and there's the but, right? Abraham didn't mourn like those without hope, and nor are we. Because there is also the tension of joy when a believer goes to be with Christ. To live as Christ and to die is gain, Paul says. For upon a believer's death, he or she is immediately ushered into the presence of God. That's what lets us be bold about missions. That's what lets us be bold about living in the way that God has called us to when there's a great cost. You know, I've been to a graveyard in Kenya. I'm going to be a few minutes late, uh, just to let you know. That's coming. Uh, a little long today. Uh, I've been to a graveyard in Kenya uh, in Kajabi, up on the mountains in the Rift Valley, overlooking Nairobi. And I was taken there by some missionaries and said, you, sh- you need to see this place. They're very simple markers. And in the 1800s, when malaria was a great scourge, and there was nothing you could do about it, missionaries from England would go to Kenya in order to spread the good news. 
And do you know what they use as their suitcase? They use their coffin. The life expectancy was six months. Because knowing that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And our citizenship is in heaven from which we await a Savior. Genesis 23 then is largely concerned with the negotiations that Abraham goes through in order to purchase somewhere to bury his bride. He goes to the Hittites and he tells them of his need. This is amazing. He, he's been promised all Canaan and he has to go buy somewhere to bury his wife. They offer him the land he wants, though most commentaries agree that this was not a, a, a real offer of giving it to them, giving it to him, but rather the starting of negotiations. Uh, it, it seems like that's the case because he ends up paying 400 shekels of silver, that's six and a half pounds of, of, uh, of silver, um, by the best weight we can figure out. It's a lot, of, a lot of silver. This wasn't a kind offer. He goes to the city that is um, governed by or uh, ruled as an elder by Ephron the Zohar, Ephron, son of Zohar, the Hittite. And they begin this process of going back and forth. Uh, he wants the cave, but Ephron gives him the field too. I guess, you know, a little extra, you can charge more. Abraham purchased the cave and the field and the trees in it. And he buried Sarah. That sounds a lot like a southern contract, doesn't it? It includes the trees, right? Uh, Ephron didn't get to clear cut them before he sold the property. I've had the opportunity to do a few funerals here in my time in Bruton. I've done gravesides in 18 different cemeteries. 18. Some in Ohio, some are in Florida, many around here within an hour or two. I've learned that you don't pronounce things the way that they're written uh, Several, several of these uh, cemeteries. Do you know why people want to be buried at 18 different cemeteries? It's because that's where their people are. Where was Sarah buried? Not with her people. It was a huge act of faith that Abraham would bury his best friend, his beloved bride, not in the Ur of Chaldees. That's where her people were from. That's where his people were from. But he was going to bury her where God had promised there would be a future. This was the promised land. This was the start of his people, of Abraham's people. And Abraham and Sarah's bones were going to be in the land that didn't belong to them yet, but would belong to his people. One commentator said this, Abraham was so sure that his descendants would get the land that he wanted Sarah's bones to be there when they finally got there. What about us? Just a comment about burial. Christians have traditionally buried their, their dead uh, for one very important reason. Uh, and it's because we know that God's not done with our bodies. That, that's why traditionally Christians bury uh, their bodies. When Christians die, our souls immediately go to heaven, but their bodies still being united to Christ still lie in the grave until Christ comes again at the day of judgment. And then He will raise them out of the graves. Both the just and the unjust, according to Acts, will be raised from the dead. But the bodies of believers will be raised and joined up with their souls where we will live forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Now the Lord can gather ashes from cremation just as easily as He can the body that's contained in a box. He can gather the, the remains from the seafloor or even the battlefields of Europe when there was nothing left. 
The bodies of Christians are precious to him, and he has a plan for them. But the reason we often put bodies in cemeteries, cemeteries comes from a Latin word which refers to a place you stay for a little while. It's like an inn along the journey. An inn along, along the journey is not the destination. It's, it's a place you go in order to get somewhere. That's what a cemetery is. It is a storage place for a body that God loves and He's not done with. Well, as we look forward to the day of Christ's return, be reminded of what Paul says in Philippians 1, for, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's saying that for me to live is service to Christ, and to die is to be done with this suffering, this body of death, that he would be with the Lord in heaven. Paul had once been the chief prosecutor of, and persecutor of Christians, dragging away many to their deaths. But when he met Jesus and surrendered his life to him as he repented of his sins and trusted in Christ, he received eternal life. Jesus says that um, his sheep know his voice, I know them, and they follow me. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. When we receive Christ, we receive eternal life, which endures through the body of our death, the death of our bodies, and will last forever in heaven. Do you have this assurance? I asked someone uh, last week, will you help somebody with some gas who came by the church? It's been a long day, and I felt that extra boldness when you're tired. You know that feeling, right? And I said, if you died today, would you go to heaven or hell? And they said, heaven, I think. Oh, I knew we were going to have a good conversation. What would you say? Is it heaven, I think? Or is it heaven? Trust in Christ. And you can say heaven. Let's pray. Lord Christ, we thank you that you have passed through death on our behalf. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to live as sojourners, belonging to the next world, as we yearn for the day of Christ's return. In the name of Christ we ask it. Amen. We'll conclude our service by standing, by standing and singing all three verses of 553, Sweet By and By. Oh,
to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.